Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself and Canadian editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. In keeping with the very serious and intellectual nature of this podcast, I will start things off this week by quoting at some length from an august academic article entitled The Conceptual Penis as a Social Construct, published in 2017 by the peer-reviewed journal Cogent Social Sciences. Here's the abstract to that article. Anatomical penises may exist, but as preoperative transgendered women also have anatomical penises, the penis vis-a-vis maleness is an incoherent construct. We argue the conceptual penis is better understood not as an anatomical organ, but as a social construct isomorphic to performative toxic masculinity. Through detailed post-constructuralist discursive criticism and the example of climate change, this paper will challenge the prevailing and damaging social trope that penises are best understood as the male sexual organ and reassign it a more fitting role as a type of masculine performance. End quote. Now, if you think that maybe what I just read sounds like a lot of absurd gibberish, well, you're right. The article was published by credulous editors, but the authors had actually submitted it as a hoax, one of a number of similarly nonsensical hoax articles that comprised the so-called Grievance Studies Affair of 2018. Other articles written by hoaxsters Peter Bogosian, James Lindsay, and Helen Pluckrose included Going In Through the Back Door, Challenging Straight Male Homohysteria and Transphobia Through Receptive Penetrative Sex Toy Use, and Stars, Planets, and Gender, a Framework for a Feminist Astronomy. As anti-woke performance art, the Grievance Studies hoax, which some referred to as so-called squared, was a brilliant and effective send-up of the often vapid and ideologically programmed nature of identity-based academic fields. But the hoax also got a lot of people mad, precisely for this reason. Here, for instance, is Deborah Poff, editor-in-chief of the Journal of Academic Ethics, being interviewed by the CBC's Anna Maria Tremonti in 2018. Should there be repercussions? Is this any kind of um, something that gets punished? There's only one person that's actually, I think, an academic, has an academic appointment in this group. That's right. He's at Portland State University. I would think that there's a number of violations of basic integrity in, in publishing that should be investigated by a disciplinary committee at his university because this kind of gotcha research. It uses so much energy of people with goodwill who care about publication ethics and integrity, and they are manipulating the process to show that it's fallible. Now, as Poff notes in that CBC clip, of the trio of Grievance Studies hoaxsters, philosophy professor Peter Bogosian was always the most vulnerable to academics' ire. And in the last few years, critics have done everything in their power to discredit Bogosian's work, portray him as a bigot, impugn his ethics, and denounce him to his bosses at Portland State University. Numerous investigations were conducted by the university, including some based on outlandish accusations. At one point, rumors were even circulated to the effect that he beat up his family members. 
Last week, in a surprising twist, it was Bogosian who pulled the plug on the relationship. He quit the university so that he could work full-time on a new NGO he started up for disaffected liberals who, like him, oppose what he describes as the intellectual corruption that afflicts modern universities. In his widely circulated public letter of resignation, Bogosian wrote that students at universities such as Portland State are, quote, not being taught to think. Rather, they are being trained to mimic the moral certainty of ideologues, end quote. Peter Bogosian spoke to me last week from his home in Portland about his decision to quit and his new post-academic life. So last time we talked, you were in your backyard because yes. construction crew in your house... I'm still in my backyard. <laughs> I'm still walking around my backyard. But so what's happened since then? I guess everything's been awesome, right? Uh, <laughs> It's a funny definition of awesome. I guess I guess if, if you stretch the semantic range of awesome to be kind of fucked up, then the answer is yeah. Uh, oh, are we recording now? <laughs> I decided I'd start with a joke because that's my thing. Oh, okay. Oh, no, no, that's good. That's good. Well, I, I just resigned from Portland State. Believe me when I tell you, it was after an unbelievable amount of thought and consideration and talking to friends and family about it. And there was just no question that it was the right thing to do. I I really haven't felt freer in a long, long, long time. So I think for a lot of people who've been following your case, and I think a lot of academic cases, the narrative is the academic is on tiptoes because they don't want to be fired. And this kind of feels a little bit like man bites dog because you just said, you know what? forget it, you threw the mop in the bucket, which is kind of what Barry Weiss did at the New York Times. And maybe it's fitting that you told your story on her site. Is that kind of how it felt, the way I'm describing it? Well, I just want to go back to something you said before. It's not that they, well, I mean, some of them may fear that they're going to be fired, but it's more that they fear the relentless campaign of investigation, harassment, lack of collegiality. So one of the things I've heard from profs is that the students are actually more tolerant than the administrators because the administrators are so risk averse and they fear getting complaints from the students. Is that the case that you experienced? Students is an umbrella term and there are different types of students and different students who are more susceptible to the moral orthodoxy than others. It's a complicated problem. Does it come from on high? Yes. Does it come from colleagues? Yes. Are these people true believers? I think so, but that's harder to say in many cases because there's a culture of fear. You know, most people, they just want to know. They just want to engage ideas. They just want to figure things out. But are there people in the class who will complain about literally anything and go straight to the dean, just right to the provost's board of trustees or what have you? Yeah, there are. And instead of saying this is a place of higher learning – there's capitulation, there's safetyism, there's words as violence, there's construing, talking about it, other ideas as denigrating a protected class. And so there's a, a suite of values at play from economic considerations of the university to, to, I think, Barry Weiss, you mentioned Barry Weiss in her letter of resignation, mentioned jury by Twitter. There are just so many factors that collude to creating censorious and illiberal environments. Not a lot of people maybe know the details of your Title IX investigation. You know that expression, when did you stop beating your wife? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's kind of what the investigation was. This went beyond ideological. Like There was actually some crazy accusation that you were beating family members. Yeah, I mean, people would walk up to me and ask me that. And, and Laura Kipnis has written about this. I think the thing that's important 
to understand here is that there's no due process in these investigations. So you don't have direct access to what the claims were. You're inferring them from the questions of the Title IX investigator and, quite frankly, from people walking up to you on the street saying, what is this I hear about you beating your wife and, and children? And in my case, my daughter is adopted from China, and that's a particularly hurtful and potentially – I mean it's just an outrageous claim, and there's just nothing I could do about it. Like there was just literally nothing I could do about it. And it was just investigation after – and I was just – one of the final straws was that they just launched another investigation about me, I don't know, a month, a month and a half ago. It was just this nonstop series of investigations just – I don't even know how much time they took. I don't know how much money. But I think one of the things that's important to know is that these are offices in search of tasks. If they find somebody who is challenging or questioning – but not just challenging or questioning about anything, challenging or questioning about certain things, right – then they just weaponize the offices of diversity, equity, and inclusion against them. Either the fear of being called in or the theft of time or just the pain in the ass, frankly. You have a climate and you've created a culture that's inimical to free thought and open expression. There's so many people who use all this rhetoric about, oh, it's like it's a totalitarian system and it's fascistic, but the elements of totalitarianism and fascism are there's one central authority pushing an agenda on everybody else. What you're describing, and I've heard other people in universities talk about this, is it's more amorphous than that. It is this bloated bureaucracy. I think that's right. The problem is that the university is not well, and our students are not being served. And something almost nobody talks about is the people paying tuition are not being served because they think that their education that their child is receiving is similar to the education they received. And the universities have transformed so dramatically in the last few years. It's just not true. So we're doing a disservice to an entire generation of students. The conversation can go many places from here, what to do about it, what's the disservice, etc. But what's really at stake, and it would behoove us to talk about, is that I think that there's too much emphasis that's placed upon free speech. Free speech is a proxy for something else. And what that something else is, is cognitive liberty. And we have entire wings of university architecture that are dedicated to – it's like a catechism. So, so the institution, the university is – it's not a symposium in the Greek sense you know, where people go and they discuss ideas. It's, it's more like a church where people go to a catechism and they look at the university as an indoctrination mill. What they're indoctrinating people into is a certain suite of beliefs – and, and ideologies broadly around what, what Helen Pluckrose calls critical social justice. And in that, there are right answers to moral questions. They know those. And if you don't, in, in the letter I wrote, mimic the moral certainty of ideologues, right? If you don't parrot those back, then you get graded down. There's a problem, et cetera. I have a good friend of mine, by the way, who's a, a young guy. He's in medical school at Oregon Health Science University. And I was about to tweet this when you called. They asked people to voluntarily segregate into racial groups. Affinity groups, they sometimes call them. Let's see, what was the word they use? And by the way, the white group is often called the white accountability group. Wow. Yes, racial affinity groups is yeah. what they call it. I'm looking at the, the picture of the text right here. And so our institutions are damaged. There's a crisis of legitimacy in them. We have really ideologues who have jobs for life, who are pushing certain moral orthodoxies, 
and you know testing people on papers that are untethered to reality. They've taken over the institutions. They've hired people like them. Just for example, the National Association of Scholars released a report that 99% of all – and I can send you the uh, link after the – so you can fact check it after the call. 99% of all donations were to one particular party. Now, you can guess – what that party is, it's irrelevant. From academics. You're saying 99% of donations from academics. No, from Portland State University. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. So you can guess the party, but the point is that that is a monoculture. I'm an atheist. I'm a very out atheist and I'm an outspoken atheist. But I don't believe the arguments for the existence of God. I teach them, but I don't believe them. That's why I have Christian apologists come in. That's why I had Corey Miller from Ratio Christi come in and give students his best arguments for the existence of God. And I taught students beforehand how to act respectfully and how to ask really difficult questions while respecting the person. I had Phil Vischer from VeggieTales come in. I've had local apologists come in to the class to speak because that's what students need. That's Mills, one of Mills' dictums, right? They need to learn from people who believe it. But we're not getting that in the university. Those monocultures, Cass Sunstein has done some great work on this. They contribute to a kind of a grotesque ideological conformity. Oh, by the way, I just I love that you just assume that our international audience knows what VeggieTales is. Mm. So I'm just going to fill them in that VeggieTales <laughs> is this cartoon in which anthropomorphic vegetables go on adventures. And if you watch enough of them, you realize that there's these Christian <laughs> undercurrents. I want to go back to what you said about free speech, though. Despite all you've endured, you've had free speech. What we're talking about is in the classroom, right? There's a difference between what you can say in the classroom. So, for example, I was told in no uncertain terms to not render my opinion about protected classes or teach in such a way that my opinion could be known. And when that did come up in the classroom, instead of explaining different sides of the case. You remember Lindsay Shepard? Of course, yeah. I, I think it's it's a similar case. You're talking about having conversations with people in the classroom where even giving another side of the opinion or of a claim or making an argument like this is why really smart people would think that. That's what I'm talking about. If you're a regular listener to the Quillette podcast, you'll be familiar with BetterHelp, one of our original advertisers. Well, thanks to everything that's happened since early 2020 and the stresses that the pandemic has put on everyone, the online therapy services at BetterHelp are more relevant and in demand than ever. BetterHelp will help you unlock the tools you need to help with motivation, depression, anxiety, battling your temper, stress, dealing with insecurity in relationships or at work, whatever you need. Especially at a time like this, no one should be anxious about admitting that they're going through normal human struggles, because you deserve to be happy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. And you don't even have to see anyone on camera if you don't feel comfortable doing so. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Join the millions of people who are seeing what therapy is really about. And Quillette Podcast listeners get 10% off their first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash Quillette. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Quillette. Thanks to BetterHelp for their sponsorship. And now back to the Quillette Podcast. I want to heat things up erotically a little bit. Erotically? Yeah, because I want to talk about the conceptual penis as a social construct. <laughs> so, 
I'm not just talking filth here. This is a 2017 peer-reviewed paper that you wrote. Co-wrote. And it co-wrote, right. Am I right that you did get this accepted in a peer-reviewed journal? Yeah, we got that accepted. That was our first Sokol-style hoax paper. And when I say we, it was with James Lindsay. And by the way, if I never revealed that as a Sokol-style hoax, that gibberish piece of madness... And it's really worth – I think you should put a link so people can read it themselves. Oh, and by the way, the conceptual penis is one of the most cited papers in all of gender studies. <laughs> but, you know, so it was published in a low-ranked journal, an intentionally deranged paper. And our, our detractor said, listen, this simply does not do what you think it does. And if you want to prove that there's a problem in certain disciplines, that they're not rigorous and they're ideologically based and not tethered to reality and not based on evidence, you need to do – a, B, C, D, E. So I said to my, my co-author, okay, this is great. They've given us a roadmap. Let's do A, B, C, D, E. And if we're wrong, we'll say it. Sure enough, we wrote 20 papers before we got busted by the Wall Street Journal. We learned, we took the lessons from the conceptual penis. But the, the fact is that there really are disciplines that are ideologically based. The way I heard about this was... There was a woman on CBC here in Canada who just absolutely lost her mind about this, but not because, oh, wow, this, this shows up how bankrupt these journals are. She was mad that you were discrediting all of these super valuable programs that are doing so much valuable work. To me, it was an illustration of people will forgive you for being wrong, but they'll never forgive you for being right. You showed this up for the scam it was. Was this, because this was 2017, was this the thing they were never going to forgive you for? Yeah, that's that's correct. We didn't do it to engineers or physicists or what have you, but it was so striking. You know, we went to a conference in Germany, my co-authors and I. We actually went out for drinks, for beers, beautiful German lagers. And the people in around the table were begging us. They were begging us. Let's see if you can do that to us. Please, please submit it to us. <laughs> and I was just so struck by that. I was so struck by the difference in attitude. When you're engaged in either a decision-making process or the peer review process or what have you, the closer you are to evidence, the less you need to become offended. If you published a paper in, in a civil engineering journal, for example, that said bridges should be made of balsa wood and you got it in, you would have a very different reaction. But these are ideological fields. If anybody hasn't read it yet, I would urge you to read Cynical Theories because that's the Rosetta Stone for this. That explains everything. That's Helen Pluckrose. That's a great book. That's correct. My background is metallurgical engineering. And five years ago, I could have sit here cackling, saying that'll never happen to the sciences. And yet... In Montreal, my hometown, Concordia University is knee-deep in something called decolonizing light, centering indigenous concerns in science. And a big part of that is decolonizing the Western construct of light waves as opposed to indigenous mystical conceptions of light. This stuff is seeping into engineering. I don't think they've built a bridge out of balsa wood yet. But yeah, it's, it's already in. And, and you also have things like research justice, which is another level of derangement, which means forwarding authors from historically marginalized backgrounds in your citations, or research justice and citation justice. I've been screaming about this stuff for years, and it went from, oh my God, that doesn't exist, haha, Bogosian's a crackpot, to, okay, this is just in a fringe discipline with a fringe number of people, to, 
okay, this is just in fringe disciplines to, okay, this is in liberal arts to, okay, this is in the humanities to, okay, this will never escape to the real world. Okay, so it's out a little bit, but it won't metastasize to, holy shit, it's f***ing everywhere. A couple of years ago, I, I quit a job that uh, I didn't like so much. And I didn't realize how much tension I had built up. And I came home and I spent a week chopping wood and building a treehouse for my then five-year-old girl. And it was the best week of my life. I know that maybe medically you haven't been feeling so great lately, but is there a treehouse in your future? That's a good question. No, there, there is no treehouse in my future. I've started a nonprofit, National Progressive Alliance. And the only thing I want to do is to beat back against this ideology. And I think that there was something very important that I don't want to gloss over in your comment. It's all fun and games until it hits the sciences. It's all fun and games until it hits medicine. It's in medicine. It's all fun and games until it hits the military. Our institutions are being corrupted. There's a crisis of confidence, legitimacy crisis in our institutions. People don't trust their institutions. Look at the vaccinations. I mean, you could just go down the list, ACLU. Oh, God. Right. So there's no treehouse. There's no rest for the weary. There's only fighting back. And now that I don't have the albatross of Portland State University on, around my neck anymore, that's exactly what I plan to do. And I've assembled a fantastic team. And again, it's National Progress Alliance, and we're fighting back. You know what angers me as a podcaster and editor is that it used to be that when a person, they were about to get canceled or people were trying to cancel them, or they self-canceled, or they quit like you did. It was super easy to get them to write for me or to get on the podcast. But dissidents, progressive dissidents, are now so in vogue. It used to be a buyer's market for someone like me, no longer. We need to talk about that. Your podcast has integrity, and it has the type of listeners that I'd like to reach, and I'd like to speak directly to them, which is what I'm doing now. So I released my letter. It took off far more than I expected it. I just thought, well, boy, everybody knows that there's the universities have gone mad. I just didn't think it would take off in the way that it did. Barry Weiss knows how to blow stuff up. I mean, <laughs> Barry's good. So who reaches out to me? Tucker Carlson reaches out to me, Sean Hannity, Laura Ingle, all Fox, all conservative. I really would like to speak to left-wing media. I consider myself a liberal. I've never hid that. I've always been honest about that. I've never voted for a Republican presidential candidate in my life. But I'd like to have conversation. Nobody on the left. Is CNN talking to me? No. Is Rachel Maddow talking to me? No. But you said it. It's catechism. Right. A religious movement defines people by their heresies. Correct. Correct. So my question to you is, what does that tell you about that media ecosystem on the left when they won't have people on who may have certain ideological disagreements with them. What does that tell you? So what it tells me is that there's a historical phenomenon by which the losing side of any culture war is always the side that's willing to pitch a bigger tent. The side that's winning the culture war, they can afford to be puritanical. And in the halls of media, in the halls of academia, in the halls of activism, high-concept journalism, the classic response when you want to have a debate about, for instance, where trans rights meet women's rights, there's a completely legitimate debate to be had there in the context of sports. And the response is, how dare you seek to debate my humanity, my existence? The concept is thrown back with apocalyptic language. 
the kind of people who do that, yes, they're being insincere, but it's a calculated form of insincerity that is only possible when the gambit is being played by somebody who knows that in their subculture, they're on the winning side. Okay. As soon as the valence shifts, the big tent gets cast on the other side and the conservatives, which I don't like that either. I mean, you saw that to the Reagan era. You saw that, you know, the moral majority where they became puritanical. And I don't approve of that the either. The only way that we can truly figure things out is to have some kind of a corrective mechanism to talk about things, to engage things, to have diversity of ideas. And it makes me deeply concerned when large swaths of the media will not speak to people who hold different opinions. That's, <laughs> that's one of the reasons people are so suspicious of the media. And I mean, it's one of the reasons Quillette has thrived because we exist in that, I can't believe I'm using this word, in that liminal space defined by classical liberalism that exists between what passes for conservatism and doctrinaire progressive wokeism. Mm. But can I ask you uh, sort of a personal question? I've been, I've been at Quillette for four years now, and I've seen a lot of people who got fed up with progressive monoculture in, in academia, for instance, and they step out of that world and they take on a new gig, which is what you're doing. I have also seen some of those people just kind of like keep moving rightward along the spectrum until they're sort of like just as far gone on the other side of the spectrum. Right. Do you see that as an occupational hazard of what you're doing? I think it's something that we need to be mindful of. Our North Star should always be what's true. And the way that we figure out what's true is the same way we figure out anything else. You have rigorous epistemologies based upon evidence and reason and, and at core, the willingness to change our beliefs. What happens is we often become what we hate. I think Antifa is the paradigmatic example of that. They're street thugs and fascists. They're the bad guys. Yeah, j just because there's a liberal censorious ideology that we're fighting, that does not mean that we necessarily change our stance on abortion or capital punishment or what have you. We are in, to, to use your uh, word, it's not exactly a liminal space, but I, I call it a great realignment. I published a piece in the American Mind about this. There's a great realignment that's occurring and when I grew up, I knew exactly what the word liberal meant. I knew exactly. I could name the positions. I don't think that those terms are helpful anymore. I, I think that the political landscape is far too complicated right now, and there are too many variables going on. And yes, I do think that there's a danger of running into the arms of the people who are also trying to smash what you're trying to smash. But as long as you maintain your intellectual integrity and you're willing to change your mind and you formulate your base your beliefs on the basis of reason and evidence and as always your north star is truth i think you'll be fine but yes i have seen it i have seen many people lurch rightwood as a result of the radical illiberalism on the left and now a commercial message from blinkist if you're like me you have a passion for self-improvement Unfortunately, when it comes to, say, getting fit or eating right or dressing better, self-improvement is really difficult, but not when it comes to learning new things and broadening your horizons, especially when you're armed with the Blinkist app. Blinkist takes non-fiction book titles, pulls out the key takeaways, and puts them into text and audio explainers called Blinks that give you the most important information in just 15 minutes. Use Blinks to learn about topics such as philosophy, history, and science, or dive into psychology, health, and nutrition, or personal growth. You've got thousands of titles and 27 categories of the world's best knowledge to choose from. 
Some of the most popular titles, for instance, are A Short History of Brexit, The Future of Capitalism, and Letters from a Stoic. And if you're more of a podcast person, they have you covered with blinks for podcasts called Shortcasts. These two are packed into powerful 15-minute reads or listens, all in one app so you can learn anytime, anywhere with Blinkist. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Quillette to start your free 7-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash Quillette with two L's and two T's to get 25% off and a 7-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash Quillette. And now back to our Quillette podcast. So if people want to support what you're doing and continue to follow what you're doing, what's the best way they can do that? I'm on Twitter at Peter Bogosian, B-O-G-H-O-S-S-I-N. I have a book, How to Have Impossible Conversations. I've just started a nonprofit, National Progress Alliance, and we just got a site up and I have so many, so many very cool projects going on. I love now. I have the freedom. I, I'm, I'm not under the yoke of some deranged system. I mean, even today, I, 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 if I may, I got, I got an email from an individual who's been stalking and harassing me for years, and it had nowhere near the effect that it would normally have on me, where I would seize up, you know, thinking to myself, the nightmare that this is going to cause me, because I know that they can no longer go to the Office of Diversity and Inclusion or call my boss or call the dean. I'm free from that. The mechanisms that people had to keep me down and keep me quiet and harass me I, I am free. You're also going to find that those trolls go away because they're bullies. Uh, and if there isn't someone they could run to with their petulance, it's, it's no fun for them. They're going to go harass some other professor. Right. I've always known that, that people have targeted me perhaps more than others, not because I'm super effective at the criticism or what have you, but it's because they have an institution they know that they can complain to. They know that they will really be listened to and it will be pursued relentlessly. I no longer have to worry about that. I can truly in my life be free and I can fight this ideology and stand up to it and teach other people how to do so. The conceptual penis was inside us all along, it turns out. It rises again. <laughs> I have to end this right now because it's just going to go downhill. I know how busy you are, so I really appreciate you coming on. Don't forget to build the treehouse. You know, it's nice to you know, go from triumph to triumph, but it's also nice to take a week or two or, or three to de-stress. I appreciate that reminder. Thanks, Jonathan. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.